So how do you know this morning if you are a Christian? How do you know if you're a Christian? Is it simply because you assert that you are? Right? Does saying it make it so? Or maybe it's because you think admirably or fondly of Jesus. Is it perhaps because your parents are Christians and so therefore you assume you must be a Christian? Or because you've been baptized? Or because maybe once you recited a prayer? Or maybe because once you had a, a moving encounter with God or some mystical experience with God? Is it because you go to church? Is it because maybe you're a member of a church? Is it because you sing in your church choir or ensemble or band? I know this, uh, it was just last month, I was traveling, I was on an airplane, I was talking with a woman, and she was asking about what I do, and I got to that point where I couldn't dodge the question anymore, so I told her what I did, I told her it was the pastor here at UBC, and she immediately just rang, she just said, hey, well, I sing in my church choir, and I think by, what she meant by that is, yeah, I'm a Christian too, and that's how she measured it, she sings in her church choir. Friends, I could keep going, but I think you get the point. One of the challenges we face when we come to that understanding of, of who is a Christian, what does it mean to be a Christian, is that term Christian is just thrown about with such apparent ease and with so little definition. So from Trump to Biden, from Justin Bieber to Kanye West, from roving African militias to Quaker pacifists, all identifying as Christians, which often contributes to the confusion. All right, so how can we know? How can we know? Because some recoil at the thought of drawing hard boundaries, right? Who are you to define who is and who is not a Christian, they would say. But friends, the Bible says we can know. The Bible says, indeed, we must know what it means to be a Christian. In fact, we're exhorted to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, Test yourselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. So how can we know? Friend, how can you know? Well, that brings us to our study, a new study this morning in the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. Let me encourage you to turn there now in your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. And as you do, just a little bit of background. So Thessalonica, that's the city Thessalonians was written to. Thessalonica was the capital city of, of Macedonia. Macedonia is just modern-day Greece. It was the political and cultural hub of the region. And in about AD 49, some roughly 20 years after the death of Christ, Paul and Silas and Timothy, well, they crossed the Aegean Sea and they landed there in Macedonia and they, in doing so, became, as far as we know, the first Christian missionaries to Europe. And after the remarkable events of what happened in Philippi, which you can read about in Acts 17, they next go to Thessalonica and Danny read from us earlier in Acts 17 how Paul had preached there for weeks and how under that preaching many were converted and yet as we saw riots ensued and so Paul and Silas and Timothy have to flee to Berea and yet during their time in Thessalonica a young church had formed but right out of the gate, right, these spiritual preschoolers are going to be met with like doctorate level opposition. That's what's going to be facing them. 
And out of concern for them, we're going to find that Paul sends Timothy back to them. He's concerned. He sends Timothy back. He wants to get a report. And it's clear from that report, right, which is this letter addresses many of those things Timothy has brought back to Paul. It's clear from that report from Timothy that Paul was being slandered, that the church was clearly being persecuted, and that much of them were confused about the nature of Christ's return, so as we go through 1 Thessalonians, one of the things you're going to come find at the end of each chapter is a reference to Christ's coming. Paul keeps dropping that in. And then chapters 4 and 5, much of that is going to be concerned with Christ's coming because for them there was a lot of confusion, so much confusion that some of them were even doubting if they were even Christians. And so it's to these weary and to these weathered saints that Paul and cohort write 1 Thessalonians to encourage these young Christians and to instruct them in the faith. So how could they be sure if they were truly in Christ? Friend, how can you be sure? Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you. And peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, so right out of the gate, what do we see about this letter? Well, it's written by Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is just the Latinized form of Silas. So again, this is the missionary team that evangelized the city. And it's written, note, to the church of the Thessalonians. Not just to any Christians in the region, but those who are part of that local church. Because, friends, we say this, but just to repeat it, God's concern from the beginning of Scripture to the end of Scripture is that he have a corporate witness to reflect him. That has always been God's plan for the world. And so Paul's assumption is that if there are believers in Thessalonica, well, they're in the church. And if they're not in the church, Paul's assumption, they must not be believers because Paul says, this is the church, right, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So just notice there how God-centered the church is for Paul. How God-centered it is. It's not a human invention. It's not even for Paul, finally, a human institution. It's God's church. 
It's in him, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's rooted in God. It's drawing its life from God. It's hope from God. It's security is coming from God and Christ. Now in verses 2 and 3, Paul is going to praise God for the Thessalonians' conversion. And then in verses 4 to 10, he's going to assure the Thessalonians of their conversion. So that's kind of exegetically how the passage breaks down. But just to think of it a little bit sort of more in terms of a preaching outline... Right? How can these individuals know they're Christians? How can we know? Well, part of what Paul's going to do out of that is make a twofold argument. And that's just going to serve as our two points. He's going to say first that conversion is grounded in the loving choice of God. Conversion is grounded in the loving choice of God. And then secondly, he's going to say conversion is witnessed in a life that is then lived for God. So conversion is grounded in the loving choice of God, and then secondly, conversion is going to be witnessed in a life lived for God. Those are going to serve as our two points. So first, conversion is grounded in the loving choice of God. So Paul's whole argument in verses 1 to 10 actually hinges right there in verse 4. So grammatically, if you, just, if you look carefully at the text, Verse 4 is the reason it grounds, right, everything that comes before in verses 2 to 3. So everything Paul says about the Thessalonians' faith and hope and love, that is because, or for, he says, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. And it's that expression right there. It's that confidence Paul has of God's choice in them that explains everything that then follows in verses 5 to 10. So verse 4 is really the hinge. Their conversion, Paul is saying, is first and foremost about God's choice. And I recognize right there that language sometimes makes us a bit uncomfortable. You know, when it comes to human love, we can talk about choice all we want. We even find one's choice of a spouse Right, the way they single them out, the way they care for them, the way they pursue them and love them and commit to them. We even call that romantic. But when it comes to God, we cry foul. We say it's not fair. We live under the illusion, I think, that we all like God. And so God should equally all like us. He shouldn't treat anybody differently. But friends, if you know your own heart... We don't all naturally love God. We don't naturally like God. We don't naturally pursue God. Now, we'll say we love God often and seek him and maybe even pursue him, but we really pursue him not for who he is, but for the benefits that he gives. That's really why we come to him. We want the benefits, right? We want the blessings. And at the same time, while we demand those, we at the same time will often flee from God. We are by nature fugitives at heart. That's who we are by nature. We're fugitives at heart. And so we get angry with God at the way he chooses. That word there is literally just election. We get angry with God. But recognize when we get angry with him for that, we're getting angry with his mercy. We're getting angry that this God is gracious to some. Friend, it's only a truly sinful people that could find a way to fault God for being merciful, for being gracious, 
And from that, that election, that choice of God is all over the Bible, right? From God's choice of Abraham to his choice of Jacob to his choice of Israel, right? His choice of David, it is all over the scriptures. And that is not meant for us to pontificate about. It's not meant for us to endlessly debate. No, instead, in the scriptures, God's choice of a people, that is hopeful. That's meant to be promising. That's meant to be reassuring, It's to foster in us assurance of our salvation and not presumption. It's to foster holiness in our lives and not apathy. It's to bring about humility, not pride, witness, and not selfishness. Friends, it's not like election is some divine lottery, right, where God spins the wheel and and out pumps a bunch of random names. No, it's, it's not impersonal like that. It's not arbitrary like that. No, choice, election is inextricably linked to what in the text? Verse 4. It's linked to God's love. It's linked to his love. Those he has chosen are those loved by God. Friend, just think about that expression for a moment. Loved by God. If you are in Christ this morning, you are loved by God. The God who created everything, the God who rules over everything, the God who sustains everything, who will judge everything, he will remake and renew everything, the God who never lies, the God who never misleads, the God who never fails to make an appointment or finish a task or follow through on what he has said. The God who will never hurt you. The God who will never harm you. The God who will never utter a cruel or hateful word against you, but will instead defend you and uphold you and sustain you and fight for you and deliver you and die for you. That, Paul says, is the God who loves you. The God who loves you. Friend, if we truly knew God, truly knew him and honored him and understood him, and valued him, and esteemed him, and grasped even the slightest fraction of what God is really like, of recognize our friends could reject us. Our spouses could leave us. The whole world could rise up against us, and it wouldn't matter because we know we are loved by that God, and that would be enough. In Christ, we are loved by God. And there's no love that is greater. There's no love that is pure. There's no love that is finer. No love that is more satisfying, more perfect, more complete, more powerful, more sacrificial, more steadfast, and more committed than this permanent love of God. So if you are a Christian this morning, and you are struggling, and you are tempted to doubt God's love, in your life, friend, God will never stop loving you because he never started loving you. There was never a time in existence where God's love was not set upon you. He loved you before the foundations of the world. He loved you eternally, which means it cannot be lost. It means it cannot lessen, and it means it will never run out. 
Friend, why should we deserve to be loved this way? Is it because we've merited it? Is it because we earn it? Is it because in some way we have proven to God that we're worthy of such love? You know, sometimes we have an understanding of love, and I may have quoted this before, the Julie Andrews understanding from The Sound of Music. You know, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my childhood, I must have been something good. Sometimes that's what we think. God loves us because of some inherent goodness in us. Friends, that's not why we're loved. No, we're simply loved because God chose sovereignly to love. In spite of us. It is, in fact, in spite of us that he loves us. So Deuteronomy 7, 7, we read, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You see right there, love and choice linked For you were the fewest of all the peoples, the weakest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. That's it. His gracious and sovereign choice. At the end of the day, we can be confident and we can be secure that we are Christians. For in this we read 1 John 4.10 is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. And in that love he has chosen us. And friend, we could not possess a firmer foundation, a more glorious foundation than one that rests on the electing and eternal love of God. But here's the crucial thing. If we've experienced that love, if that electing love of God has come to us, then there will be evidence of it. Our lives will give expression to it. There will be some distinguishing marks. And that brings us to our second point. Conversion, yes, it's grounded in the loving choice of God. We've got to start right there because for Paul, that's where everything hinges. And yet, secondly, it is witnessed in a life lived after God. Secondly, conversion is witnessed in a life lived for God. A life lived for God. And I just want us to note here four distinguishing marks of conversion from our passage. Four distinguishing marks. What does it look like? Conviction, imitation, proclamation, and transformation. So if you're a diligent note taker, we're in the second point and there are four subpoints. all right? Conviction, imitation, proclamation, and transformation. So first, notice conviction. Paul says he knows they've been loved and chosen. Write down verse 5. Where does he go to say? He moves on and says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So notice those chosen by God must first hear the word of God. Now, the gospel didn't come only in word, but it didn't come without words, which means election, rightly understood, doesn't make evangelism optional. It actually makes it possible, even indispensable. And that's what Paul and Timothy did, right? They would go to Thessalonica and they would bear witness using words. They would share with words. 
Because words, friends, are how we encounter God. Words are how we come to experience God. How we come to know what it means to please God and to follow God. So none of this, like, preach Christ, use words if necessary kind of stuff, if such a quote was even ever said. Right? The gospel will be dramatized in life, but before it can ever be dramatized in our life, it has to first be verbalized to us in words. Because it's through the word, friends, that we consistently see that the Spirit works. Word and Spirit are always married in Scripture. Just like they are in verse 5. So notice how tightly Paul connects the presentation of the word with the work and the operation of the Spirit. Right? The gospel comes in word and the Spirit works. That's the spirit, it's what makes the gospel word powerful and effective, right? Like a marriage, again, spirit and word are going hand in hand. For the word of God is the spirit's sword, Ephesians 6.17. So the spirit without the word is weaponless, and the word without the spirit is powerless. You've got to have both. And the effect is that some hearing... The word through the operation of the Spirit, some came under clear conviction. Right? They came under conviction, meaning they were brought to understand the truth of God's word, especially what that word had to say about them, what it had to say about them in their sin. They had to come to submit to that word. Friends, when one comes under genuine conviction, you know it because they stop speaking. And they start listening. They stopped acting like a lawyer, objecting and defending themselves. And instead, they start submitting to and loving God. You know, that was my story. The first time I ever heard the gospel, I hated the gospel. I thought the gospel was obnoxious. I thought I was a pretty good person, and I read the Gospels, and it was very clear that Jesus didn't share that same assessment. He thought I was a pretty lousy person, and I've been working pretty hard to be a good person. I thought I had a good standing with God. I thought maybe even I had a great standing with God because I had tried to live well. You know, the heart of a Pharisee is in everybody. That's not unique to Christianity. I mean, that's just our natural sinful fallen hearts. And instead of a good standing with God, you read the Gospels, you read Jesus, and it's really clear I'm under the wrath of God. I didn't particularly like that message. And yet, as I kept reading the Scriptures, what's going to happen? Well, word and spirit will come together. And as I kept encountering the authentic Jesus of the Scriptures, not these things that pass for Jesus, but actually Jesus as he's presented in the Scriptures, I came to find that I was coming under conviction. I was seeing things that I had not seen before. I started listening more. I started objecting less. And I remember one day coming to the realization, oh my word, I think what's happening to me is what's happened to these guys. I think that same thing is happening to me. My whole worldview was being upended. So, you know, they're saying of the Thessalonians that the Thessalonians have turned Thessalonica upside down because they're sinful. No, they were turning it right side up. Theologically, that's exactly what was happening, but that wasn't their experience. They rejected God. I was coming under conviction in my own life, and my convictions and attitudes, they were all changing. If, friend, if you've never fallen 
under genuine conviction of God's goodness and his holiness and of your sinfulness, if you've never come under that kind of conviction, you've not been converted. You can't be a Christian. All Christianity begins with conviction, a conviction brought about through the word of God as it's accompanied by the spirit of God. Now, sadly for some, this is where conversion begins and ends, right there. There's a point maybe in their life when they feel badly about sin, and so they pray to Jesus and say, please save me, which is a wonderful prayer to give. And when they talk about their conversion, though, that's all they point to. That's all they go back to, some moment perhaps deep in the distance where they cried out to God for help. And it's true we all need to make a one-time definitive decision to follow Jesus. We must do that. But a true one-time decision to follow Jesus is always followed by an everyday decision to follow Jesus. And that's where he goes next. That second evidence of conversion, imitation. That everyday decision to follow Jesus is going to be witnessed in the way they imitate him. For Paul goes on in verse 6 and he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now stop there. We, we sometimes hear that word imitation. And we're like, imitation, that's cheap, right? Who wants like anything, imitation anything? Like you want imitation meat? I don't want imitation meat. Right? Who wants imitation? It's, it's cheap. It's inauthentic. Maybe we even think imitation. We think, yeah, that person's a sellout. In our speech, though, in our manner of behavior, we all tend to imitate something. All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all conforming to something. Friend, what are you imitating this morning? How is your life being conformed? What is it being conformed to? The patterns of this world? The thinking of this world? The ways of this world? The desires of this world? The love of this world? That pull, I get it, is strong. Sort of like the undercurrent of an ocean. It's always tugging at us. It's drawing at us. Sometimes subtly, sometimes very imperceptibly. So I remember my first visit to the ocean as a kid. Right? I was born in Phoenix, and as a young kid, went to San Diego. Right? The only waters I knew were pools, calm, clear, right? nothing exciting happening for the most part in those pools. I get to the ocean, there are waves, it's exciting, it's big. I go out, but what am I not anticipating? What do I not know about? Currents and undertoes. So I'm out there, and I'm having a grand old time in the water, playing in the waves, and all of a sudden it occurs to me, as I look back, the shore is far, and I've drifted a long way, down the shore and out to sea, long enough that I can cry out and no one was hearing me. And it happened so subtly, didn't perceive it, didn't seeing it. Now, obviously, I'm here, so like it didn't end terribly. Thankfully, those, there were tall towers, and a lifeguard saw me, and I got rescued, right? There it is. Then I started swimming. Um, but at any rate, point is that pull 
to imitate, to conform to this world, it is subtle and it is yet so strong. Right? What it has to say, this world, about gender, about sexuality, about notions of equality, about inclusivity. If we're not careful, we too are slowly, imperceptibly drawn away from the shore and we are drawn out to sea, which is why Paul, right, if you know Romans 12, will warn us not to be conformed, right, to the patterns of this world, be transformed, rather, by the renewing of our minds, right? We're to conform ourselves here, though. He doesn't say that exactly. That's true. But here he says, actually, conform yourself to godly examples. They became imitators of us, of Paul and Timothy and Silas, godly men, You became imitators of us. Paul will later say, 1 Corinthians 4.16, he will say, I urge you to imitate me. Now that's odd language. We don't think like that. And Paul, to be clear, he's not saying dress like I dress, like the foods that I like. He's not talking about preferences in that sense. He's rather saying imitate the godliness you see in me insofar as I myself am imitating Christ. Paul's saying you imitated us, right, and the Lord. Notice both. He's saying they imitated both. And friends, recognize that's part of why we are called as believers in Christ. If we're Christians, we're called to disciple others, to invest in others, to pour into one another spiritually in order to do them good spiritually so they can become imitators, actually, yes, of us insofar as we are being imitators of the Lord. In such imitation, we see so often in Scripture, such imitation often comes at the expense of much affliction, verse 6. The affliction they suffered as a consequence of hearing the word and following Paul and Silas and Timothy's example. You know, the, the world, the world will take notice when you no longer follow it. When you defect from it, it recognizes it. The world loves to talk about tolerance. It loves to prize authenticity. Yes, but authentically follow Jesus and you will see how quickly this tolerant world can become intolerant. Authentic gospel ministry always arouses animosity and hostility from the world because the prince of this world rejects everything we stand for. And yet this pattern of outward opposition in Scripture when met by true believers is so often accompanied by what? We read that inward joy of the Holy Spirit. That joy of the Holy Spirit. It's the repeated refrain of the Scriptures. Because in the Bible, friends, the, the, road, the road to the best things is often not through the good things as we define them, but it's through the hard things. That's often the road in Scripture to the best things. And it seems that these Thessalonians were so faithful in imitating Paul's example that the imitators in turn are then imitated. We read in verse 7 that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So now it's Athens and Corinth. That's how their testimony is ringing out. Because we don't just imitate others for our own spiritual well-being in Christ. 
but also we imitate others and godly examples, and finally we imitate Christ for the well-being of those who are watching our lives too. Which means when we begin imitating things other than Christ, when we begin conforming to this world, it's not just our souls are at peril, it's the souls of all who are watching us and who are tempted to follow after us. It's those souls we put at peril. Parents, think very carefully about that with your children. Older siblings, think about your younger siblings. Leaders, elders, we're called to be an example to the flock. We have to take this call seriously because the ruin of our lives ruins far many more lives. And part of that imitation we see is going to come in the form, thirdly, of proclamation. Proclamation. That's the third evidence of their conversion. Yeah, conviction, imitation, proclamation. And a proclamation that's going to be twofold. It's going to be both word and witness. Both word and witness. So Paul writes in verse 8, that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. So it's clear the same word that Paul had shared with them, they are now sharing with others but it wasn't only the word, it was also their witness to the word that rang out. Verse 8, as he continues, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we do not even need to say anything. So part of what Paul's presenting and helping us see is that it's by both our word, the proclamation of that word, and our witness, it's through both word and witness that we reach the world. Both is how we reach the world. And we can't do it alone. This is what Christians are called to do together. Because all the yous in chapter one, they're your alls. I didn't even say that right. I'm not from the South, right? I'm trying. Second person plural, how about that? Y'all. All right. They're y'alls. You guys might find this humorous. Before I came here at CHBC, a bunch of people got, me together, got together with me, and they tried to teach me how to say some of the expressions in the South. And they gave up after five minutes. They're like, you're, you're gone. You're lost. You can't do it. I won't teach you all the things they tried to teach me to say either. That's a different, that's a different story. All right. Point being, they're plural. This is what they were meant to do together. Which is significant, because so often, what do we want to do? We want to reach the world alone. So we do evangelism and we do it apart from often our church community or we try to seek the lost across the globe and we do it without a church community apart from local churches. And that's not to say God won't use our work. It's not to say he won't bless our efforts. It is just to say that our work will be limited. Its ring in the world will be soft and the world may scarcely take notice of it. So I remember, just to sort of highlight what this can be like, I remember years ago uh, visiting a museum, this musical instrument museum in Phoenix, Arizona with the kids. The kids were a little smaller, and we're going to this museum, and it's pretty great, though I don't know anything about music, so I'm enduring the, past, the last half. And then we get to the end, and the end is like all these instruments in a room, and they just say, like, have at it. Do whatever you want. And I'm thinking, okay, this is great. And so, of course, what do I see at the other end of the room? I see this huge gong, like five to six foot in diameter kind of thing, and William and I see it, and we just beeline right for that gong. And so I grab the, you know, the mallet, so to speak, and, and I look at it, and I'm like, all right, here we go. And I wind up, and man, I slam that thing right in the center, and oh my word, it hurt. And 
like no noise came from it. My hands were like ringing and pulsating, and there was no real visible sound, and it was quite humiliating. And William was looking at me like, come on, Dad, like, and no joke, this elderly woman comes up, and she worked there, and she's like, actually, that's not how you do it. She says, first, you've got to warm it up. You have to tap it around the center. You have to make little strikes, make little sounds around the center, and then hit it. And I'm like, oh, my word, whatever. Well, she does it, taps it, these little arms, right, skin hang, right, whatever, you get the picture. And then she, she hits it. And I mean, the sound of that gong's like overpowering in the room. And William's looking at me like, Dad. <laughs> but there's an image in that for us. When we share the gospel as individuals, a great thing, it makes a sound. It's like those taps of the gong. It's kind of warm up. But when that is accompanied by the corporate witness of the church, and when the church's witness accompanies it, and when that speaks along with those little individual witnesses, when those work together, that's when that bass hits. That's when you get the resounding noise. That's when the word of the Lord really rings out. It's that individual witness with the corporate witness. And that's part of what we see in Scripture So if you want to be serious about reaching the lost, if you care a lot about cultural transformation, recognize it all starts right here, right within local churches. When gospel word is combined with gospel witness in a church, that's how the surrounding world is reached. Which brings us lastly to transformation. Transformation. Friends, one genuinely converted is always radically changed. That's part of what Paul is helping us see. Look down at verse 9. One genuinely converted is always radically changed. Because Paul explains what it looks like, their own conversion. He says that they turned to God from idols. So away from idols and to God to serve, that's the purpose, the living and true God and to wait So they both work and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Right there, Paul's just sliding in that reference to Christ's coming. Okay, just remember it at the end of every chapter, you're going to see that. But friends, that's what conversion looks like. That's the transformation Paul is sharing. This turning to God from idols. And sometimes these idols are of the physical kind, physical idols. And, you know, we're tempted as Westerners, and sometimes we get really proud, and we're like, yeah, that's all superstitious. But much of the world is still bound up in a kind of animism behind a lot of idol worship. Here in Thessalonica, Olympus, where supposedly all the Greek gods, where they resided, Olympus was right out their back windows, not far from the city. They could see it. To turn to God from idols and no longer worship all those gods at the city, basically at the base of that mountain, that was costly. We already heard what happened to Jason earlier in Acts 17. That was costly. Now, we like to fashion ourselves as more sophisticated. But friends, your heart isn't and your idols aren't. Paul says those who give themselves over to sexual immorality and to greed 
are idolaters. We may not worship images of wood or of stone, but we worship images of the flesh, no less. We may not worship at physical temples, but we still bow down just the same to fame and to fortune, to power and to pleasure. We even create our own idols, our own images of God. So how many times do we hear people say that they like to think about God as all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and certainly no wrath. Friend, that is an idol made in our own image. And notice Paul doesn't say you can have Jesus and your idols. You can embrace Jesus and keep those idols. The occasional hookup, the occasional drunken evening, the cheating at school, so easy for so many during COVID the lying and the backbiting at work, and yes, even the gospel at church. We don't get to keep that life and simply add to it a bit of Jesus on Sunday. No, we have to categorically walk away from that life, flee that life, sever ourselves from that life. That's the transformation you see in genuine conversion. And what's the evidence of that work What does that work look like? Well, it's part of what Paul opened as he prayed to God for them. He prayed to God because they were the work of God. And that work evidenced itself. In what? Work of faith, verse 3. Labor of love. Steadfastness of hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Calvin called that verse right there in verse 3 just the, the simplest definition of Christianity. Faith that works. Love that labors. And a hope that holds fast. Friend, I wonder if that describes you. Does that describe you? Because I began with that question, how do you know if you're genuinely a Christian? And some of you will remember Kirk Cameron, right, star of that late 80s sitcom Growing Pains, who then went on to star in some Christian movies, some about Revelation and the end times, which Ryan Trogman is going to keep teaching us about. But he also wrote a foreword to a a book, a wonderful book, Mike McKinley's book, Am I Really a Christian? And in that foreword, Kirk Cameron said, the reality is that hell is heavily populated with people who profess Christianity but never stopped to examine themselves. Those are heavy words. I wonder what you think of those words. Jesus did say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Friend, how do you genuinely know if you're destined for heaven? How do you know if you've been converted? Quite simply, we've seen, Paul's laid it out clearly. Conversion is grounded in the loving choice of God and then witnessed in a life lived for God. A life evidenced in genuine conviction, in godly imitation, even in spite of affliction, in proclamation, and then in radical transformation. That's what a converted life looks like. Does that describe you? Are you a Christian? Friend, you can be. That's the wonderful news of Scripture 
And it begins, as Paul says, by turning from dead idols and to the living God who welcomes you, eager to receive you. And you do that, what? By repenting of sin and placing your faith in Christ. None of us are saved because we simply make a profession of faith. We are saved because we presently possess faith. Faith in Christ, in the risen Christ. That's how we are saved. Faith that Christ lived rightly before God. He alone has lived rightly before him. Which makes Jesus the perfect mediator to reconcile us to God. Because only he has lived rightly before God. And then Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, right? He died in our place and then rose again victorious over the grave. Friends, we like to say we're not saved by works. We are saved by works, just not our works. Christ's works. That's on the basis by which any and all can be saved if they repent and believe. So I want to ask again, are you a Christian? Will you become a Christian? Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you and we we give you praise. You have loved unlike us, the opposite of us, in spite of us. We have not been treated better than we deserve we have been treated the opposite that we deserve and our hope rests not on our works but solely on the work of Christ for us and in that we rejoice Lord we come and we give you praise we thank you that we can rest assured not on the basis of our past faith not even on the basis of some measure or value of our present faith but on that objective faith that holds tightly to Jesus and even then it's not how tightly we hold fast to Jesus but it is how committed and tight he will hold fast to us that's the Christ in whom we place our faith and we give you praise for that Christ in his name we pray amen